0: This is a Momentum Media production.
1: Nerd alert! Property Nerds, (laughs) the
0: home for data-driven property investors, where we uncover Australia's hot and cold markets, latest headlines and trends. Property Nerds are back. We're back in for another episode. It's Arjun Paliwal here, your co-host and founder of Investigate Buyers Agency. And uh, I'm here with Lee.
1: Hi, yeah, I'm Lee Pollywell, and I am the director of Hills Finance out here in Bella Vista, Sydney.
0: Awesome. And so we've got some exciting news, a few new releases of this episode, and um, the usual finance data update as well to keep you posted on all things finance. But we'll be jumping very deep into what I call investing relativity and also our new white paper we've released here at Investigate, which has loads of jam packed info. So, Lee, I might kick it off to you. What's happening on the finance front? You've seen, obviously, the new ABS data. It'd be great to hear from you on what is coming out.
1: So, yes, October 2021, ABS data has come out and obviously going straight to the finance numbers. So, overall, there has been a fall of 2.5% in lending, but it has remained 32.2% higher compared to one year ago. So, obviously, it's on a rise overall, which is fantastic. Just recently has fallen. Now, in terms of owner-occupied housing, that's fallen by 4.1%. And so, this is actually the fifth month consecutive fall. However, it is remaining higher at uh, 15.1% a year ago and 42.5% higher than pre-COVID levels back in February 2020. So, um, that's good. Uh, With
0: finance, you know, falling, I think, what the last few months, I mean, what's that fall been in terms of owner-occupiers versus investors? Was it owner-occupiers falling only or was it investors falling as well in the finance? Because that, yeah, that's a it was couple of months of the dips, right?
1: It was owner-occupier at the 4.1%. So investment's actually gone up. At 1.1%.
0: Investors back in action. Yeah. Uh, Not going to say thanks to InvestiKit alone, but I mean... (laughs) (laughs)
1: Investors Investors investing with InvestiKit. So um, that's actually the 12th consecutive month of a rise in a row. So more and more investors month on month. Look, I think it's
0: needed. I mean, the key thing here is that another thing to note is rental markets have been super stressed. Vacancy rates are so low. Investor activity... It should be rising, in my opinion, to come and relieve some pressure. But that pressure is not really easing much. It's still picking up and getting even stronger on the rental front. But yeah, thanks for sharing the thoughts on the um, investor and owner-occupier split. Well, what else is happening on that front from the finance?
1: Well, so if you've been tuning in, we do our monthly podcasts. The last couple of months, we've talked about, obviously, the fixed rates that continue to rise. So initially, you know, CBA you know, started the trend. And that was back in October 15. They moved their fixed rate terms by 10 basis points. Now, since then, they went again massively after that was called by the RBA. And they added a full 50 basis points to all of their fixed rates. Then you had Westpac, NAB, and ANZ, which continued, I should say, follow the trend. Um, they moved it twice since then, NAB was the only one lender until just a couple of days ago that had fixed rates in the ones. They've now added fifty basis points to their lowest fixed rate. So there we go. All fixed rates for owner occupiers are now in your mid, early mid twos plus.
0: I guess the key thing to point out is, and and for those who didn't check out the last episode, we actually jumped in and we're talking about how investing relativity and how to think about interest rates in greater detail. So we'll definitely go through more about the impact of interest rates on various markets and how it's not a one size fits all for sure. But the key thing as well, Lee, is if I'm correct, fixed rates is one part of the equation. Variable rates are still standing pretty steady and if not even down for some banks, aren't they?
1: There has been drops in some lenders for the variable rate or just remains as it's. So yeah.
0: So, yeah, I think in in summary, I would say the rates haven't gone up. I'd say variable rates are still an option. Fixed rates can change. They're more the bank's outlooks on what's ahead. And for those fixed rates that are changing and people are choosing fixed rates, the thing that I would say there, Lee, is that when we talk about that last episode, we spoke about relativity. Um, I think we raised an example on Adelaide. And when we used Adelaide, we talked about rents inflating as well by 8.8% over the last 12 months. And we took a case study where half a percent of rate rise against a median house price in Adelaide, say 80% loan, in comparison to the 8.8% in rents rising, the variance was about $10 a week. So you can see... You know, with rates rising, it's a result obviously across of the thought for higher rates, inflationary pressures, and so forth. But at the same time, rents are a line item in the inflation column. As we do see that increase, that does then mean that it's all relative. I'm not ever going to be a perfect picture, but just one of those things.
1: Yeah. So simply the fixed rates for two, three, four years is what the bank thinks the rates will be at that point down the track where they foresee it's going to
0: be in two to three, four years. And so, Lee, um, the white paper, what's happening over there? We've got some exciting news there coming up soon. But before we jump into that one, I know you and I offline were talking about some exciting news on what's happening in the broker space. now. Big
1: news. Big news there, right?
0: How's that going along?
1: So... Most obviously, everyone in the broker space is aware of this, but just so everyone is aware, the broker channel has hit a brand new milestone of writing 66.9% of all new residential loans in the mortgage lending market. What that means is, you know, obviously, you can go to a bank or a broker. 66.9% of loans now are written by a broker. It's fantastic (laughs) for all those brokers out
0: there. Now we can say we're not biased when we say our brokers are better because obviously I know you run a brokerage at Hills Finance, but (laughs) the numbers are there, people. People are wanting to go to brokers. And I guess the key thing I think of there on that one is definitely portfolio lending versus transaction lending.
1: Well, it goes back to, yeah, why does someone choose a bank over a broker? And generally speaking, your mortgage broker will be an experienced lender whether they've started in their journey in mortgage broking or in the banks and they've journeyed out. And yeah, exactly. So they understand how to structure finances, whether it's use of multiple lenders to get the best out of your portfolio. Yeah, the clients are starting to catch on that there is probably an advantage of having you know access to an expert like that who has access to multiple lines of lending.
0: Yeah, and that portfolio versus transaction piece, like you've just explained there is so key. We see it all the time helping investors scale portfolios. You know, people going to their bank and going, Hey, Arjun, this is what the banker told me. I'm stuck on my borrowing. What do I do? And I can't, you know, emphasize any more than I just keep saying that you're not really stuck on your borrowing if you're going to keep going back to your banker for your bank you're not. The key is that portfolio analysis from looking at multiple banks, looking at your scenario for you, not just the you meet or don't meet this one policy, be tailored to you. And that's where portfolio lending is not only helping um, investors, but I think it's also helping owner occupiers who are thinking of that first go and getting it right and making sure they've reviewed all their options.
1: I think that's also a testament to that clients are becoming more savvy themselves as well like they are probably doing a bit more research themselves as well like they know there are options right obviously there's online all that kind there's of podcasts, stuff. like the property nerds <laughs> hoping to help people
0: uh increase their savviness so uh, no okay. no you're, you're spot on uh, consumers are better prepared they're exactly. taking more care of their finances Correct. too i mean which
1: is a good good sign i would say
0: I mean, look, it's not that I catch up with all different types of age segments and brackets all the time, but when I think of family and, you know, parents and people of different, you know, age brackets, I'm feeling like more and more in that sort of 20 to 35, people are talking more about finances than I've ever seen before. Like I used to think that was a-
1: All age groups.
0: Yeah. I mean, all age groups, but that age group in particular, they're talking about finance a lot. And- you know, many people would used to think that that's the whole, you know, don't do anything with money or don't, but it's far more than I ever used to. I mean, I go over to the opposite age groups and I feel like I used to always think growing up that that's my parents would be speaking about that. And they were, but then it's kind of calmed down in that sort of space to talk about that so openly, right? Yes. It was more of a private conversation. Correct. This is mine, this is yours. But now I just feel like it's opening up a lot more. So I totally agree in terms of the dinner table conversations, the savviness of consumers, the research that people are doing, the content out there that's helping. So totally that's helping in that front.
1: For sure. For sure. Well, in terms of the report that you mentioned, the, Ooh, value, the hot stuff, the yeah. fun stuff today. So, Investigate has just now released their Overvalue, Undervalue Property Report. Now, this is available on their website, which is investigate.com.au And all you need to do is go into the website, click onto their white paper section, and you'll be able to see this report. Now, I've obviously gone through that report. It's a report that analyzes the eight capital cities and 25 major regional centers. And they go through things like, obviously, the overvalue and undervalue metric that they talk about and how that's actually measured, but also market pressure in these current markets. And also, what are their thoughts around the trends that they're going to be going into or for the new year 2022 so yeah I'm definitely very excited to dissect that with Arjun today I'm going to do something a little bit different than we do usually and I think this will be great for our listeners so I'm going to go through and ask Arjun some questions about that report to break that down and better understand I guess how to dissect a report like this and that will be quite useful for our listeners
0: and overvalue undervalue as well means that like some people are going to hate me, some people are going to love me after this, but <laughs> promise I'm not trying to offend anyone uh, with this data analysis or report that we've done. Um, really, we're here just to provide support and information to listeners and viewers and and just really support them on their journey to have a total picture of markets. But um, yeah, I'm keen to go through this.
1: Perfect. I'm going to dive straight into it. So could you explain the mythology that you use for understanding over and under valuation?
0: Yeah. So, firstly, um, I don't want to take all the credit on the methodology at all. So, Jung, who's our research analyst, and I'm the, the head of research here at Investigate, We do a lot of reading, a lot of reading across insights that comes out, and staying on tune with what many analysts across the country are producing, and professors from the University of SA. Professor Lishman was one of them there that we read, and uh, Professor Rossini. They, you know, release some. Info to the, I think it was in Daily, released an article on Adelaide's overall value or undervalue assessment. And Adelaide was seen as undervalued as a market, even as interest rates increased, even as price growth happened. And I found that very fascinating. And I said, hey, this is interesting to me. And I like the way they've done it. So we firstly got inspiration from them and their article, and they created this purchasing power index. But to best explain the methodology, what it was, was that we used the local ABS data for that statistical area, and we used their income data. And with that income data, we made it like a dual household, so two incomes in the household. Now, with this dual income household, we increased it based on the percentage changes between the data released at a certain statistical level and the statistical level we were getting to make it more correct or make it more in line with trends. From there, we took this mean income data. So mean is the average. And with this mean income data, we then took the net number and off that net number, we used a 30% benchmark. So what this 30% benchmark is often used globally for is affordability. If you're spending more than thirty percent of your income or household income on mortgage repayments or rents, things like that, that can be seen as unaffordable. If you're at that 30%, it's affordable and below that, even more affordable. So that was the first part of this methodology. The second part of this methodology was to look at the median house prices and take an 80% loan on a 30-year term. With this median house price on an 80% loan at 30-year terms, we then had two options. One is today's, say, 3.5% interest rates, P&I. And then the second option, the question everyone's been thinking about is what if rates go up? We move those interest rates up by 1% and looked at it from a 4.5% P&I repayment, 30-year term, 80% loan against the median price. So now we've got two numbers. The output number one is a dual-income household's 30%. Net income. And then the other number we've got is what the current PI repayments are at 3.5% or 4.5%. And so we would compare the two to go, hey, if the median house price of a city, say 500K, as an example, how much would it have to go up to make these numbers equal each other? Or if it's overvalued, how much would it need to come down to make the repayments at their median price equal the income data? So this is all about debt serviceability. And this is the part that many people get wrong because so many people think about you know, household debt to income ratios when we have to talk about how we service the debt. This is what's important to maintaining a property, exactly. not just a price to income ratio or debt to income ratio, servicing the debt. So that's how the methodology was for overvalue or undervalue ratings on the property market.
1: Fantastic. And I guess the important question is how does that analysis actually help property investors?
0: Yeah, so how this analysis helps property investors is to consider it in a few ways. Firstly, the overvalue, undervalue, it does not actually have any correlation with capital growth ahead. But what it does do is it gives you some insights on if growth were occurring, would it be to an extent where the market's undervalued and locals may not be too pressured by these price changes due to income and servicing that income capability. Whereas if a valued location is substantially overvalued, how long and how frequent can growth keep occurring at these overvalued levels? doesn't mean it you know, does not happen and it cannot grow. It can grow. And I've got many examples to share that, but it's just something to keep in mind. And this is where you talk about real affordability because affordability is based on servicing. So that's how investors can use it. But In terms of the um, things that we've done further along on this report is that we've actually also overlaid some of this data because overvalue and undervalue, you you want to overlay some of the data. And so what we did is we put market pressure to analyze how hot or cold is the market right now. And then we also talked about its last 10-year growth to talk about its recent cycle positioning. And lastly, where we think it's headed. So that's how we made this analysis a lot more helpful than just is it under or overvalued? Because some cities have been overvalued for like 15 years and yet they've continued growing. So there's no clear correlation. Hence why we wanted to look at it from, is it overvalued or undervalued? And by how much? What's the pressure that's occurring there? And what's the recent 10-year growth look like? And what are we thinking ahead for the short term? So it was a, a very broad analysis that covered many factors.
1: Okay. And so what would the shortcomings of using this mythology be?
0: Yeah, great question, Lee. So there are shortcomings for sure in any methodology and property where you try and you know put everything together to make it one data point and use data to tell everything perfectly. At the end of the day, it's bricks and mortars and households are different, prices are different, suburbs are different, jobs are different. There's just too many variables for us to go hmm, this data says why, and as a result, your city cannot grow. So Mm -hmm. that's the first thing to understand about property data. But I would say the shortcomings in this methodology is anytime you're using a single methodology to rate a whole city, that's the first shortcoming. If we take that same mean income of Sydney, and when we looked at Sydney's data, Sydney's data was a very interesting one. The Greater Sydney data was seen to be twenty-two percent overvalued in the current markets, based on our analysis. Now, there's the shortcoming of this methodology is displayed in the fact that can you really use a mean income to display all of Sydney's affordability levels? Mm. You know, the inner west, the northern beaches, and the east of Sydney earn substantially different amounts to the far west and the southwest. So that average can be distorting income levels and and make that change. So I think that's one key thing, right? There are many cities within these huge capital cities. The other thing as well is that the second shortcoming, I'd say is that when you look at a regional center, I'll give you another example there. And, you know, when we're looking at the regions, I think of the region of Townsville. The region of Townsville was very interesting. What the region of Townsville had was an undervalue by 113%, 113%, Whoa. which is massive. That is. And an undervalue of interest rates went up by 1% to 89% undervalued. So the shortcoming in those, some of the regions are that the incomes, you know, when we talk about relativity are not much lower in some of our regions. Some of our median incomes, an example in Townsville is not that much lower than our major cities, but the house prices are substantially lower. So this can be common in some of our areas where there are fly in, fly out workers, or there are workers who may be in industries of a city that, say, don't see themselves living in that city long term. And so what happens? You get these people on good incomes who can afford Townsville to buy properties there, but they're instead renting. So these rental yields are phenomenal. And that has not carried across to purchase pressure. And so these cities are undervalued by huge amounts. Mm. Now, one component could be that, hey, Townsville has not grown much or at all over its 10-year price growth trends. So there could be lots of room to grow and there is an undervalue rating here. So that could be one angle, but the other angle could be employment makeups, jobs and the appetite to purchase or not purchase, even though the income's there. So that's another shortfall where the income is there, but people aren't using that undervalue income. They want it to be affordable living or, or just want to rent. I'd say the final shortcoming of the methodology, Lee, is that affordability for under or over value cannot just be taken account into debt servicing alone. There's also cost of entry, deposits, how much of a deposit you can put down, how quickly can you save that deposit. We didn't want to overcomplicate this report and add in all the various layers of, you know, you need 10 years to save a 20% 20 deposit, or you can do this. We didn't want to make this just a affordability analysis alone. We wanted to use it as a debt affordability analysis, servicing that debt because interest rates are on people's mind. And then we wanted to use it from a market pressure overlay. So I guess the shortcoming is that it's not affordability in its total view from you know, savings to get in or purchasing a property. It's affordability from the component of servicing debt, which I think is the most important piece. So I'd say those are the three shortcomings, the, the broad analysis of a capital city that makes it look like it's overvalued, The, the region, some regional markets that are substantially undervalued, but we need to consider their job makeup or breakdown, And then the last piece being, you know, what we've just gone through there. So I would say that's the key parts there, Lee.
1: Okay, great. Well, I guess the last question, what I want most people want to know will be considering all of that, what you've mentioned, what are your thoughts for the markets across all the markets in the year coming up? And what did you come to with these conclusions?
0: This was a very, very exciting report. So many conclusions can be made about what we think is ahead for 2022, but it's actually going to be varied performance. Anyone reading this report is going to get very excited by the prospects of multi-speed markets. I think there's a love-hate relationship to what's occurred in 2021. I actually want to take you back to 2018 and 19. You know, this is just a info on on our business and our business made a substantial amount of purchases for clients in Ballarat, Bendigo, and where the dip in Sydney occurred towards 19, even made some purchases during that dip to then have strong recovery for clients in 2020, 2021. There were many other case studies that we can bring up, but the key part that I raised that 2018-19 period is that because everywhere was not growing so heavily, there was a very big split between market performance. It made my job as an analyst far better and easier because I like it when we can isolate trends and find various performance levels because this helps us focus in on a couple of key areas and go, hey, this is what's happening. And I think these one or two locations, the Ballarats and the Bendigo in 2017, 18, are going to really start to show some promising years Or in our case, we did a lot of buying in Adelaide and Brisbane in 1819, saying that, hey, there's a lot of promising years ahead here from what we can see. So the key here is that isolating becomes easier when trends aren't so hot. In 2020, we had the most difficult time because everything was going crazy everything, 20% all over. It was like an Oprah Winfrey show. Everyone's like, you know, you're 20% for you, 20% for you in capital growth. You
1: have a car, you have a car.
0: (laughs) And so as a result, it made it difficult. What I'm excited about in 2022 is we're going back to those multi-speed markets, which means we're going to go back to areas where I can analyze different markets. Not everywhere is going to be moving the same heat at that same level of pressure. We're going to see some areas cool down some areas get hotter and other areas continue their heat. So what we should, you know, go into is how we came to these conclusions that this mixed performance or this mixed speed is going to occur. Well, you see, the nature of each region that we've broken down, we want to go, I want to just take you through what we analyzed. And this is really how we came up with the paragraphs at the end of each region to say this is what we think could be in store for the next year. If I take into account an example region, I'll just bring one up now, right? So a region that's sitting right here in front of me in the report was Albury. Actually, I think Albury wodonga is right in front of me here in this report. And so with Albury wodonga we've seen some phenomenal growth, and this is where it's really interesting on how we can use this rounded analysis to share thoughts. So firstly was the affordability analysis, the over-under. Albury-Wodonga median prices would have to rise another 36% for them to reach fair value if interest rates went up 1%. So the income levels can handle interest rates going up 1% and the market's still undervalued by about 36%. Uh, Now, 36% sounds like huge numbers and everything's going crazy, but essentially median house price of 437. And if that went up by 36%, and uh, the median house price would be 594 So median house prices could rise substantially for them to be at that 30% net of a dual-income household. And that's another thing to remember back to that shortcoming is that this is dual-income households. Not every household is the same, single parents, older demographics, younger demographics, multiple kids. It's
1: an average you know, yeah. Exactly, yes. right?
0: And so the second thing we overlaid Albury-Wodonga with was a pressure analysis. With pressure analysis, we looked at a few key trends the direction in listings and where listing levels are, the direction in sales volumes and where they are, the direction in days on market and where it is, and how tightly were those trends coming together. So listings falling, sales volume increasing, the level of listing or inventory, listings versus sales volumes were extremely low and extremely closely aligned together. So high pressure and places are selling much faster. So in summary, the pressure is high, and it has been getting higher, even as the year's gone along in 2021. The second thing is we looked at rental pressure. Are vacancy rates low? The 2% was our balanced benchmark. And in this case, Albury-Wodonga vacancy rates were trending below 0.68%. So in a rental crisis, that's clear. The trend of rental listings, so listings were trending up a little bit, so more properties are coming up for rent. However, with the vacancy rate that low, it would take a decent amount of change for that to come back to normal. The next thing we overlaid was healthy yields, moderate yields or low yields. In this case, the Albury-Wodonga yields predominantly sit at 4.5 or greater, so very healthy. And the last piece we had was 10-year price growth, having 60% price growth over the last 10 years. So what that means for us is that it's an undervalued market seeing high pressure that is getting stronger as the year has been going. Rental markets in high pressure, yields are healthy, but the price growth has been strong over the last 10 years. With pressure like this, we'd anticipate 2022 to be strong in Mm -hmm. albury wodonga but we would also... Get investors to be mindful that the last 10 year growth is back to its long term average in a 30 year perspective. So, its years of overperformance ahead are not going to be at high levels for many, many more years. With this level of pressure, we would expect some high performance to continue on. It just cannot be your 20 or 30% 10 year growth markets and then boom up to catch up to its long term average. It is at its long term average. So, we don't expect it to go overperforming for a decade ahead or something, but we do expect a few years ahead of very strong performance. So that's an example of how investors can use this white paper data, combining affordability, combining pressure, the trends of pressure, current yield levels and its cycle positioning, And then review that with our commentary to just get a good feel of where we think 2022 or what lies ahead for 2022. So that's our conclusion. And we are going to see a mixed market for sure.
1: And again, that is for eight capital cities and 25 major regional centers. So a lot of info. And correct me if I'm wrong, is this a free report?
0: It's a free report. And um, all you need to do is sacrifice your email address for us and uh, <laughs> that's it. But it's a totally free report. You can jump on investigate.com.au to catch this.
1: So a lot of data insights and I guess, you know, information there that you can use to help make some good decisions in the new year.
0: Yeah. And in summary, um, what we're really seeing for this report is that we are going to see a couple of our major cities slow down because their trends are separating listings and volumes are going in separate directions and they're overvalued. Mm -hmm. We are going to see some of our regional cities and other capital cities outperform, particularly Adelaide and Brisbane are looking very strong, especially Adelaide, the sales volumes and listing levels get stronger and stronger and get tighter and it remains very undervalued. And then there are many of our regions, which will not be this next one year only. Some of our regions I can see here could possibly grow for the next two to five years with double-digit percentage growth over each year, it's that strong in terms of pressure based on some of the things that we're seeing. So we need to see a lot of vendors flood the markets for this to slow down anytime soon in some of these cities, but it's a mixed bag. I mean, some cities are going to slow down a fair bit based on this analysis.
1: Amazing. So you're saying Townsville, out of all of them, is one probably one of the most undervalued. Yeah,
0: locations. I mean, there was many undervalued. I think what I found was that the regions had markets that were undervalued by between 30 to 90%. Mm-hmm. But I think when I think of undervalue, overvalued, the key of it, right, is to not go, hey, you're undervalued 90%, it will grow 90%. Mm-hmm. Remember, a key attraction point to many of these regions is that people want to live there for affordability reasons. So there's no point in in having those regions move from affordable to non-affordable just to get back to fair value for the sake of it, that's never going to happen. I think they're always going to be having an attraction point of an affordability piece in comparison to other cities. So to some extent, we could say that some of these regions will always remain undervalued because people are seeking affordability. Mm -hmm. but. Yes, there are some that are just substantially undervalued in this case. So yeah, that's basically it from this this particular analysis and report and Uh, Can't wait for, um, you know, I guess, feedback, thoughts, anything like that. And it's out now. And if you'd like to grab a copy of it, you can jump on to investigate.com.au. We did our best here on this podcast to dissect some of the pros of it, the cons of it, what to expect. And again, this is free and and that's our job here at The Property Nodes. We want to pass on free insights, dissect the property data that's out there, share finance trends and leave it with you all to use them on your journey as you see fit. Amazing. Property nerds out.
1: Property nerds out.
0: Game over.